Yo, yo, what's happening, people? You are tuned in to episode number two. This is Mixed Nonfiction. And this month, we are going to be discussing the ins and outs of Outliers, the story of success, written by Malcolm Gladwell, a household name. He has five New York Times bestsellers, and this review today is going to get you guys to every goal that you have ever set in your entire life. I'm talking Tony Robbins-level success after this. Everybody is going to be able to do 10 more push-ups just by listening to this show. Trust me. I got some really good feedback, guys, from our first edition, Neil deGrasse Tyson's book that we did last month. I'm still knocking the rust off the wheels, so I love you guys for sticking this out. I'm having a lot of fun creating this show, reading a lot of cool new content, and uh, packaging it in a fun, digestible way for you guys to really get into. And I'm getting a couple messages, some recommendations about books, some... (laughs) some criticisms of my ideas, which I'll address in a minute, because... A lot's already happened in this first month off. So this week we're going to be doing, like I said, Outliers, the story of success, Malcolm Gladwell. Before that, I got a little this past month, and then we'll get into our author review. Who is this guy, Malcolm Gladwell? Where in his career, his influences to write this book? We're going to talk about next month's, and then go chapter through chapter. Malcolm Gladwell books are just, um, they're pretty easy reads. 300 pages, 20 chapter page type of deals. And it starts out with a little story. In his case, he always uses a little sample group from whatever point he's trying to prove for that chapter. And then um, usually has some cool quotes, which of course I have a ton of we're going to be sprinkling in. At the end of the show is everyone's favorite monthly segment, the Would You Rather. This month's is more of a hypothetical, which we will be getting into a little bit later. And it's a doozy. It's a scary one. We're talking about children. Children and their toys. And what if it was your child? (laughs) You scared? I hope not. This is a place to have fun. A place to have fun. And this is a motivational book, which motivation is good in certain doses. If you have too much of this, it's kind of like anything. It just stops working. (laughs) So... You know, listen to this in spurts as you need to. I know that first show that we put out was a doozy, two and a half hours for some person that you've never listened to before. But um, I, I got responses that people listened to the whole thing and they loved it. Uh, the YouTube video is popping off. A lot of people are finding that through the meme account, Harry Shit. That is my meme account. Yeah, I tied that to my name. Like 70 people have tuned in and watched the YouTube video, finding it through that and we posting out here so welcome to the community everybody i probably should have said my name by now but of course i forgot to nick muniz your host here on nick's Nonfiction. Ta-da! cool so this past month on that meme account we're almost at 10k followers and that's when you can post direct links on your stories so now it's a bitch for people if they see something on the story they got to go on to the youtube app themselves but when you're at 10k instagram is all bougie you need to have a certain amount of clout to post a link on your story. So that's pretty frustrating, but there's a goal, and we post in funny content 
all the time up there. So go check out Harry Schwant. And if you're coming here from Harry Schwant, what's up, players? You're here for the geek sauce, I'm sure. So uh, I'll hit you with some uh, stinky YouTube videos. And regarding Harry Schwant, this month was the first banned meme. I got this really scary message from Instagram. Of course, I have it screenshotted. I'm going to save that thing forever. It says, um, like, you didn't follow our community guidelines. It didn't cite any sort of guideline that I didn't follow. But my assumption is the meme that this fiasco is referring to had something that resembled a swastika in the picture. So it was a it was a dumb little joke I made. It was a picture of a shoe that somebody designed and one of the spokes of the swastika just like jetted off like a Nike swoosh. So it was a really crappy design. This isn't my fault. I'm just making a joke about it. And the caption was when you want to be the first of your friends to finish a race. Little Hitler joke with the swastika and it goes with a running shoe. A couple layers to it. And Instagram decided it was a bit too controversial threw up 2,000 likes on there and 40 comments people were arguing if it was insensitive but as we can see this isn't a place for a public platform Facebook and Instagram this month just hired Tencent which is the Chinese company that monitors their group me and everything every group chat in China on like group me or Facebook messenger or WhatsApp has an extra member inside the group chat and it's like a government agent just making sure you don't say trigger words like Tiananmen Square or whatever like we were talking about last month. But Tencent, this is the first Chinese cyber company that broke 500 million in profit. It actually might have been 500 billion. And so they're going to be censoring Facebook and Instagram now. And I just got hit with that community guideline thing. Never happened before. It's kind of scary that even though Facebook and Instagram take government seed money and even CIA black slush fund money, so it's funded by taxpayers, but the Constitution doesn't apply. It's not a platform of free speech. You can't even make a joke. So that's a this month. Also this month, Paris protests still going strong. You got to watch, like, if you want to see videos of that, you got to see it on RT, the Russian media, because no other... Like, America doesn't want to show that stuff going down. Also this month, there was the case of the kid in the MAGA hat staring down the veteran, the Vietnam veteran. But as we learned, the guy was not a Vietnam veteran. He lied there. And the whole story was fabricated by the mainstream media. We don't even know who this mediator, the guy who stepped in at the very end, is. You can watch the entire two-hour leaked footage because... When you have a bus full of 40, 15-year-olds, there's a 0% chance that the entire day isn't going to be caught on film. And so as soon as this story broke, I was like, there's no way this 16-year-old kid with a smug grin just went up to a Native American and looked at him in the face. But that's what anybody who just looks at the beginning of the story believes and then goes and preaches, don't you think it was gross what that Chad kid did to the Native American? And this type of person, if they ever come up to you, they are just preaching the religion of the left wing to you. This is not a rational thought. If you actually wanted to be informed on this situation, you could have watched the entire video. And you would know that this Indian guy was with a group of black Israelites who are the type of protesters who go to like military funerals and were shouting at the kids. You can listen to all their slurs. They were pretty funny. They called them like incest babies born from the butt. <laughs> They called them faggots. They called them 
Uncle Tom's, if you didn't follow the whole story, it was a Christian school that the kid was from, that they were on the field trip from Kentucky. And they're just in D.C. for the day, and they're like, holy crap, what are these people shouting at us? Can we get involved here? And when I was 16, we took a trip to um, Washington, D.C., got drunk for a majority of the days, it's like skipped all of our mock trials and all that type of stuff. It's just what 16-year-olds do. <laughs> if I ran into these black Israelites, I would have loved to get slurred by them. They were saying some funny stuff. They told the black kid, they're going to harvest your organs. These kids aren't really friends with you. I think that black is real light. Watched Get Out. <laughs> but that's definitely going to stick with that kid forever. Anyway, yeah, that whole story was fabricated. None of the kids ever once said build the wall, which on any CNN platform, they were saying the kids were chanting that <laughs> at the Native Americans. They were like, uh, today in the reports on the official news, kids were shouting build the wall at Native Americans. But what would a wall do to keep out people that already have the right to this land? And it's like, none of that narrative was true, to make the point you just made. Seems like the mainstream media right now is just you take a picture, and then you make a story up around it, and you use it to fit your agenda. There's no actual journalism going on. Watching a two-hour video, and then talking bullshit about it on your friggin' non-fiction podcast is more journalism than that. So yeah, trying to put some honest work in for you guys. And then finally, in this past month, I got some messages, like I said, suggestions for books that we'll get into, but I'm inviting all types of feedback, good, positive, send it my way, and munas at udell.edu. People are mad I'm bullshitting on the moon landing. It's a bad one. I don't want to get into it any more than I have to. Let me just spit one more point out to these people who are saying, read the official story. I mean, think of it this way. You prove to me that we went. I shouldn't have to prove to you. I'm not a friggin' scientist. Why isn't there just a video of us doing all this? They said the 1960 broadcast, the live broadcast from the moon, okay? We still have trouble broadcasting from across the Atlantic Ocean. The live broadcast had a four-second delay from the moon. And as a mass media communication major with my bullshit degree whatever value that holds probably nothing in a real conversation like this you could talk to an engineer people have had interviews where they say okay so why with today's technology it would be more like a two minute delay we wouldn't be able to transfer live footage from the moon in four seconds and this is 80 years later and they asked a nasa scientist like where's this media communication that we don't have anymore and they're like oh we had to reverse engineer and destroy it and it's just too much of a hassle to put back together so rocket boosters aside the communication devices we still don't even have the technology to do this live broadcast we did back then and our country needed something positive at that time so i'm not saying it wasn't good for our country it was great for our country but it's not great for my reputation as podcast host when i have to talk about facts and people don't like facts all the time <laughs> But yeah, I'm looking forward to more of this. We have conspiracy books. I read one by Jesse Ventura, the governor, <laughs> the ex-WWE governor. Look, Donald Trump is the president. He was on WWE, so we can't discredit this guy. But we'll get into that down the road. And that is this past week. You guys ready to talk some outliers, some stories of success, people that go further than we can even imagine? Let's do it, people. A little about the author, Malcolm Gladwell. 
He is a 55-year-old man right now, obviously an author, a podcast host currently. This is what he's been doing for like the past five years. He was born in England 55 years ago into an academic family. His mom was a psychotherapist, also an author, which bringing it full circle at the very end of the book, he talks about her writing. And then his dad was a math teacher at the University of Toronto. So he had the technical, the math, STEM dad side, and then the mom as the analyst literature reading between the lines, (laughs) psychotherapist mom. He went to U-Toronto, and his grades were too low for grad school, which is interesting in terms of this whole book, because if you put the hours into whatever your grind is, that's apparently how you become an outlier. But he couldn't get into grad school with his hours, and he still is outlined pretty hard. But 10,000 hours alone isn't what makes you an expert. It was in 1987 that Gladwell began covering business and science for the Washington Post, and that's where he worked until 1996. So that's where the 10,000 hours comes in. This is what this book, Outliers, is known for. You've probably heard it in discussion before. If you put 10,000 hours, that's how you know you're an expert. But that's not the only thing we learned throughout the journey that I'm about to take you all on. But this is where Malcolm Gladwell says he got most of his experience to do what he's doing today. From 1996 then to 2000, he wrote some popular articles that really got some notoriety for his name. The most popular was about an $8 shirt and a $10,000 shirt and how it's actually more of an art and more impressive for a company like Marshalls or Walmart to be able to produce 10,000 shirts at $8 a piece. Just the pure manpower, architecture, civilization requires to be in place to be able to do that rather than a designer shirt for $10,000 that's ripped all over, like a Kanye West shirt or whatever that disgusting crap clothesline is. (laughs) And I think that's a good point. So if it was 1996, I was in the womb during this. But if I got to read that article, I would have found it very interesting that that's pretty true. There's a lot of art behind the guy's life who fucking committed to be a t-shirt garment salesman. And thinking back to reading the book, chapter 8, we're going to be talking about Jewish guys in the New York garment district. So that's really cool how that all comes into play. Uh A little more about the author. This is when it gets into Malcolm Gladwell actually being an author. He wrote those articles. And finally, in the year 2000, he drops his first book. And this book was the fifth bestseller for the zero zero decade. So from 2000 to 2010, it was the fifth top selling nonfiction book. And that was Tipping Point. So I might have to do a review of that in the future here. It's kind of a similar theme to Outliers. And then in 2005, he wrote Blink, which is about preconceptions. I remember I had to read that one for a class. A lot of the examples he uses are about like police officers. And when you see when they see someone who's black, they have these automatic reactions. 2008, he wrote Outliers. You got that right here read for you. 2009, What the Dog Saw and Other Adventures. 2013, David and Goliath. Those are his books he wrote. And then in 2016, he starts Revisionist History. Uh, I've only heard like a couple of sodes of that podcast. Very history heavy. If that's what you're into, go give it a listen. And Malcolm Gladwell's unmarried and has no children. If you look at pictures of him, he looks like a Q-tip, a white Q-tip with an afro because his mother is Jamaican and his dad is English, but he is a pale dude and he looks exactly like a Q-tip with brown hair or I guess then just a Q-tip that has earwax on it. And that's probably why he's not married. 
and that's about the author for you. Some notable life events, 2005, he was in Time's 100 Most Influential People, probably because it was just after his book Tipping Point came out, which was sold so far and wide, so people knew his name. And the kind suggestion that I had received this month from a listener was Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So I did some research on it, which, like I said before, you can only read so many motivational books at once because it kind of starts to lose the juice. It loses its value. But I might have to look into this one. This book was the first ever audiobook to break a million downloads, and that was from, like, 1987 or something. If there's all that buzz, there must be some sort of worth to it. Maybe we're going to have a review of that. 12 episodes a year, I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff we could go over. I'd say this next life event is pretty notable because his authorship has finally started paying off. You don't necessarily make a tremendous, a tremendous, I just made the okay symbol with my hand when I said that. That's exactly how you do a Trump impression. Tremendous. You don't make a tremendous amount of money being an author. In 2008, <laughs> Mr. Malcolm Gladwell started cashing out. He was making $45,000 per speech, doing 30 speeches a year, talking about his previous books. That's how authors can really start to make their money. And people wonder, like, hey, why hasn't he been doing any work lately? That's probably because he has millions upon millions of dollars, and he's not messing around anymore. He's just doing what he loves. So that's insane, making a yearly wage during one speech. That's like how Obama goes and talks to Goldman Sachs and makes 200K. That's not a conflict of interest. 2007, Malcolm Gladwell earned an honorary degree from Waterloo and then 2011, honorary degree from University of Toronto. And then in 2012, there was a big spike in his career with the 60 Minutes piece about redshirting kids in kindergarten. So you know redshirting is like holding a college athlete on the bench for a year for the sport so they get stronger they get to work with college level coaches and they're better you can use them in your program for an extra year people are doing this with their kindergartners because your brain is another year developed so you're killing it on the times tables reading level and this was like a big issue especially in private schools parents were like <laughs> parents were like sending their kids to school at 12 years old he was in kindergarten and they were like driving to fifth grade hitting on their teachers in eighth grade <laughs> none of that's real i actually remember watching though the 60 minutes episode with like my parents because this was in 2012 and yeah imagine that if you were like a year older yeah you might have gotten made fun of by stupid ass kids hey that probably would have just given you thicker skin when you grow up but you're bigger your brain's more developed you get your driver's license a year earlier you could drink a year before everyone in college you get out of college, if you're a man, I guess this pays off because women hate aging. You're not in that mammalian dead zone from like 22 to 25 where that's not an attractive age for a woman. Or like a, anything, a girl in their 20s. Yeah, he's uh, he's got everything together. He's 22. I'm the first person to have ever said that on the planet. See, it didn't sound right coming out. Malcolm Gladwell, he's making great points about holding kids back and how It'll help you in your early 20s. It's an accumulation of advantages. That's a theme throughout the book as well. Where in his career is he? He's just doing this little podcast series. I don't know if you can keep a career like his going on forever, just writing an insane book every four years that becomes a bestseller and you have to tour and all that. If you do keep that pace up, you become, I guess, just like a legend, like 
Stephen King or something. Or <laughs> you could write too much and go crazy like L. Ron Hubbard, who wrote the most fiction of all time, but then also started a cult. That's the leader of Scientology. It's kind of like how people are getting mad at Skrillex. He <laughs> posted the biggest albums of the 2000s. He started electronic dance music, but he used to release an album every four months, and now it's been four years, and he hasn't done anything. It's like this guy created an entire genre of music. Let him be. <laughs> you can't expect too much out of Malcolm either. He's chilling now. He gave a lot to the world through these books, and we're going to learn a lot here. Finally, his influences to write the book. This was in 2008, so he just previously wrote a bestseller, so he's riding the wave, kind of like Neil deGrasse Tyson did with his bestseller, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, then he just capitalized with Accessory to War. That's what Malcolm Gladwell did, wrote Tipping Point, capitalized with Outliers. He's not even coasting anymore, he's just like body surfing on the wave back to shore with his pod till retirement. Also an influence to write the book, his mom was an author, and throughout this book we see that you are a product of your environment, so obviously that must have had some sort of influence on the guy. I believe so. We're just about ready to get started. Quick teaser before we dive headfirst into Outliers. Our book for next month, the month of March, March is a boring month. It's still cold and dreary and gray out, and you hate your job. You're still working long hours. You're expected to work 60 hours a week for no particular reason in March. We're going to be talking about, drumroll, <laughs> Bullshit Jobs, a theory. It's a book written by a guy called David Gerbner, just an anthropologist, so that's why it's called A Theory. And so this guy's studying our current situation in America with jobs, and it's going to be a provocative one because, hey, my first six months after college, I worked a job that I don't think was particularly helpful to the human race. I went home at night and was like, what did I just do for eight hours? Did that really help anyone? And this book goes over that. I'm really excited to read it. I haven't read it yet. It goes over that. It goes over how automation is taking over a lot of people's jobs. And that's why people don't feel a lot of value, which is also why like prescription drugs are at an all time high right now. It all ties together. So we're going to be doing that next month. Bullshit jobs, a theory by David Kerbner. It's going to be real interesting. So tune in. Let's do this, people. Coffee's kicking in. You hear that? It's kicking in. This is the real beginning of the show. Part one of Outliers, the story of success. Part one is about opportunity. And we learn here, even geniuses don't get anywhere in life if you don't have opportunity. Even geniuses, the most obvious outliers with a giant IQ, don't get anywhere without opportunity or help from their environment. So let's start this bad boy off. Light the candle, kick the mule, pop the top. Chapter 1, The Matthew Effect. Who is Matthew? It doesn't matter at all. This chapter was about sports mostly, so it's an easy way to ease us into a nonfiction book. And sports is a great way to analyze hierarchies. Let me just drop a little base about where we're doing in this book. Everything in human interaction is a hierarchy. Sports, uh, music, ballet, intellectual, like academic. You need to get to the higher level to get to a graduate program. Everything's a hierarchy. Rock stars, geniuses, software developers, business tycoons. Obviously, it's the free market, baby. Professors. I remember in college, you know, I won't start with the story yet. We're still getting into the base of outliers. Everything is is done through hierarchies and you want to be the first one in to start working on that to get to the top of your hierarchy otherwise nobody values you women don't value you i guess um you gotta always be beautiful as a woman men 
what do you, what do we always have? Um, I I don't know. I can't think of anything else. You could work yourself to death. Um, so that this is about getting to the top of your hierarchy. And sports is a very easy way to find outliers because you think, oh, that kid's a natural. He didn't have to put his, quote, 10,000 hours in. He's just a natural. And that's the biggest misconception of the book. We'll find out. As I mentioned before, Malcolm Gladwell likes to use a focus group or like a, excuse me, a sample group for each chapter. And in this, he used a Canadian hockey league. Also, the biggest common denominator throughout all success like we were talking about every sort of music, ballet, rock stars, intellectuals. You don't rise to the top of whatever hierarchy because you're a white male. <laughs> the biggest common denominator that Malcolm Gladwell and everybody else has found is individual merit. It's not environmental. And this is actually the thesis of the book. <laughs> All these nonfiction books have a thesis for last month. Accessory to war, it was that we need to start funding so we could try to beat China because space is the next frontier, basically. And this one, he says, individual merit is the most important, not intersectionalities, which is basically like how much you have, quote, working against you. I had to take gender studies in college. It's required to graduate now for most arts degrees. And intersectionalities is one of the biggest chapters that you go over, which is I'm an immigrant and I'm gay. So th those are two intersectionalities I have in my upbringing, whatever. I'm a black, African-American, handicapped, transgender, allergic to peanuts, don't have very good balance, have to inject insulin. But, you know, that's type two. So that's not technically an intersectionality. But you get the point of intersectionalities. Malcolm Gladwell doesn't believe in that. He's a lefty. He's a hardcore left-wing guy. But he says individual merit is most important. So he does acknowledge that people do have preconceived notions about people or inherent biases. But he thinks intersectionalities are bullshit. <laughs> okay, I'm glad we got that figured out. So even though that is Malcolm Gladwell's thesis, individual merit is most important, not intersectionalities, he does end the book saying that our biggest misconception misunderstanding about outliers is that they're talented and they would have gotten there anyway the real story is that nobody is able to do anything alone and a quote from the beginning we got to kick this book off with a nice little quote of course in outliers i want to conceive you that these kinds of personal explanations of success don't work <clears throat> People don't rise from nothing. We do owe something to parentage and patronage. The people who stand before kings may look like they did it all by themselves, but in fact they are invariably the beneficiaries of hidden advantages and extraordinary opportunities and cultural legacies that allow them to learn and work hard, work hard and make sense of the world in ways others cannot. It makes a difference when and where we grew up. The culture we belong to and the legacies passed down by our forebears shape the pattern of our achievement in ways we cannot begin to imagine. It's not enough to ask what successful people are like, in other words. It is only by asking where they are from that we can unravel the logic behind who succeeds and who doesn't. So looking at the face value of someone's success means nothing if you don't look at how they got there and the failures before. Fancy words. There's a little taste for you guys of how Malcolm Gladwell likes to write. It's all pretty because it's a bit of a shorter book, so the language has to look good. All right, we got your point, Malcolm. So let's get back to the sports teams and outliers. In this junior Canadian hockey league, 
all the best players past the first couple years, the people who actually stuck with the sport, were born in January, February, and March. He listed all the dates. They had good little tables, a little sample size of junior Canadian hockey players. And it was really odd that all the players were born in the first three months of the year. And people were thinking it was due to astrology. Maybe, you know, Capricorns and Aquariuses are just really good at hockey. But it turned out that the cutoff is really what either encouraged or deterred parents to sign their kids up for hockey. If they were big enough and born earlier in the year, then of course their parents were going to sign them up because they would have an advantage and be better at the sport. And so we start to learn about the accumulation of advantages. So if you don't get in on the training early, you're going to fall behind slowly. So there was a cool little dialogue in the book where they, instead of the names of the players, they had the announcers say the month that they were born. And it went something like, January passes the puck to February, who passes back to January, who passes over to March, who passes to February, who passes to another January. It's a cool little trick you can do to expose how much the accumulation of advantages really is there. Gladwell cited how there were even five times more kids in January than November who even signed up. So like I said, after the first year, parents know (laughs) my kid is at a severe disadvantage already, so we're not even going to sign them up if they're born later in the year. And it turns out this is not just the junior Canadian hockey team. This happens in all physical sports, and that's obviously because the rate of kids growing is so exponential that it contributes to their success like successful athletes most of them were early bloomers it turns out because the coaches saw oh my god this kid is a specimen he's gonna be huge when he grows up we need to start coaching him now so that he has the skill to go along with the talent quote unquote because a lot of times talent for football players or basketball players is being either the widest or the tallest because you know like steph curry anybody could work on their shot for ten thousand hours So you want to have the physical base, and this is why sports make a really easy analogy to start the book off. Gladwell, of course, did stick in how late bloomers, like the nerds, if they stick at it, they bloom late in life as well. (laughs) So uh, people like him, who look like a Q-tip and could be snapped in half by a basketball player, um, as long as they stick at it, then they'll be ready when their opportunity comes up as well. In the MLB... If you want to go look up a lot of players, have August birthdays is the most popular. Again, that's not an astrology thing. It's just when the cutoff is in a lot of farm leagues in America. And then Dominicans are so good at baseball, you know, because the soil that they're born on. No, it's because of the culture. The kids are just playing stickball all day. So they accumulate their 10,000 hours by the time they're 12, like Beethoven. Now, where are those soccer fans? You guys are probably out there saying, like, soccer is skill-based. Only the people with the best footwork make it to the most elite level. Sorry, homies. (laughs) If you look at football club rosters, the top 11 players on the team usually have birthdays within a couple months of each other's because, again, the national cutoff date for soccer clubs is around the same time in whatever country you're in. So then, of course, the most elite football club will have the first-born kids who get in on the sport early. So you guys get the point now, kind of. took me a couple minutes to try to articulate that point, but I feel like we're rolling now. This this is going to be good. It's already good. We're getting even more gooder. You heard me. So this is going to kind of bring us to the end of Chapter 1. Referencing what I said a little bit before, it's a fallacy that the best always rise to the top. 
and it's definitely a fallacy that they do so effortlessly. People don't see the failures behind success. Having a head start is a bigger common variable in success than talent. So people who start earlier wind up more successful than people who start later and are more talented. How do you prove this? He uses the accumulative strategy of success, analyzing music players. So they have what are called naturals, people that just pick up a guitar and start shredding, and then grinds, people that like play scales for hours a day and finally just learn how to get rhythm down. It winds up that more people in the most successful orchestra are grinds rather than naturals. And it winds up that way in a lot of sports as well. So let's just tie that back to hockey. The same is in hockey. You wouldn't believe if I pretended to be a genie. And I went, nobody born past November will be able to make it to the Junior Canadian Hockey League. You'd be like, why are you believing in this? Who are? That's crazy. But we overlook the reason why people are successful. But you can't ignore the fact that nobody's going to teach a kid how to ice skate in the middle of summer. And there he's already lost out on the first three months of potential ice skateability in his life. And he's already exponentially behind the kid who, whose parents threw skates on him a little bit earlier or whatever. It's like how kids learn languages so fast when you throw skates on them a little bit earlier. They make it to the Canadian Junior Hockey League. <laughs> and that's going to bring us to the end of Chapter 1, everybody. We're getting a feel of how outliers are born and made. Starting early. Chapter 2, The 10,000-Hour Rule. His data set for this chapter is programmers, coders, people who invented the internet, basically. And of those people, he starts the chapter with Bill Joy, the guy that wrote a lot of the code that lets everyday people, us, access the internet. The little line of code that fires when I click Internet Explorer, Google Chrome, BitTorrent, whatever the friggin' servers that you use, Bill Joy is getting you on the internet if you open the little <clears throat> thing in your browser where you can see the code it goes crazy the second you hit connect to the internet yeah that, it took some brains to be this guy and invent this bill joy has some brains behind him so hate him or love him depending on how well you're able to stream this at the moment you're probably like this guy sucks i got a ton of chop in my feed you know but i don't think any of us are, are capable of doing what he did Bill Joy went to UMich. He put in his 10,000 hours at the computer lab there throughout the years around 1971. He was so excited to finally have access to computers, as a lot of kids were in those years, that he worked there during the summers. Again, going above and beyond the normal bell curve, making him an outlier. As motivational as Malcolm Gladwell wants to dress up all the words, Bill Joy put himself in the computer lab when it was sunny outside and Chicks were getting tans out on the quad. <laughs> we'll come back to Bill Joy, but Gladwell talks a little bit about how achievement is talent plus preparation. So it's even better when it's innate talent plus preparation, but innate talent is still small when ungroomed. So just like the naturals when it comes to the music world and guitar, if those kids don't actually work on that lick that just comes to them when they pick it up, it's going to sound kind of gross until the end of time. They got to put those hours in as well. Yeah, I kind of covered that more in the last chapter, even though it took place here. So I will spare my time and yours, and I won't repeat myself. It's grinds versus naturals. And at the highest levels, it turns out grinds are more common. He uses the example of Mozart here. 
Mozart was born to a really rich family, and he was a prodigy. So he, his parents sat him in front of a piano for whatever reason, because he was blind and deaf or whatever. But they just kept sitting him down with a teacher, and by the time he was 21, he already had done 10,000 hours behind a piano. So this is what considers him a musical genius, because he was an outlier for his time. Seven-year-olds can now play Beethoven because more seven-year-olds have access to the education. YouTube videos, literally, all you need are YouTube videos now to be as good as Beethoven was. Everybody has access to that training and opportunity, so we can all be what once was an outlier. Now to be an outlier, you need access to elite training, even more stuff than the common person does. So you, you kind of see the gist of this. If you have the best training, you become the next outlier. At Beethoven's time, even if you were deaf, as long as you were born into a family of wealth who had the resources to hire a piano tutor, people were not wiping their butts at this time. They were riding horses around everywhere, passing out in the streets, stabbing each other. You were more likely to go through your, your life killing someone than not. And this guy had a piano tutor? Of course he's going to be an outlier. And so that's why it's not that hard to be a Mozart now. You just have to think what's going to be a realm that's kind of untapped that I can train to be an outlier in. I don't know. That's a way to think about it, I guess, if you're trying to outlie. <laughs> I like that example, though, because it shows the test of time as well. So yeah, Mozart might have been the greatest musical prodigy of all time, but he didn't even hit his stride until he was 21 and he put his 10,000 hours in. So it goes to show we hold this guy on such a high pedestal more because it's a fable than anything. It's not like he was some wild outlier. He was just some guy who was born into wealth and was able to get on a piano. And he was deaf, so it makes for a good story, and that's why he has the name recognition. But he wasn't that good of a pianist. Sorry. Back to Bill Joy. Back at it again with the white vans. Bill Joy in the lab invented the internet, remember? It's how we get on the internet, this guy. The way he did this was he wanted to get more computer time. Remember, he went during the summer just so he could pretend to do an internship so he can mess around and code on the computers. Well, other kids started to do what he was. But remember, he got the early start. He was doing it before anybody. So he already had a base in code, and he invented a timeshare program. So, like, everybody was using separate monitors, but they wanted to use the main computer. And he was able to create this line of code to make them all interconnected as a web, <laughs> interweb, internet. And he didn't really know what he had just invented. He just knew, dude, I'm going to get so much more computer time now that all these other noobs can get on. It might slow down the computer for everybody, but at least we can all use it at the same time. Time sharing, huge. Who's into startups? Uber, the most successful startup of this decade, is based on time sharing. That whole algorithm is going to make people billions in the upcoming decade. Blockchain, this entire cryptocurrency explosion is built on time sharing servers and how they like mine data. I'm not smart enough to go into it, but there's obviously a lot of money to be made in these aspects. Next part of the chapter, he focuses on the Beatles a little bit and how they got their 10,000 hours. Around the time of rock and roll, America started bringing rock bands into strip clubs. We were like, we love boobs, but we need a little more rock and roll. They called it the nonstop strip tease, and it was how a lot of famous U.S. bands got their 10,000 hours. And the U.K. inherited the nonstop strip tease, 
So we might not have the Beatles without it. The Beatles would get invited up to Hamburger, Hamburger, Hamburg to play the clubs while they were still in high school. And this was giving them a ton of hours on stage. And one year later, they came out with Sgt. Pepper and the White Album. They were living in Liverpool. And people would say when they came back to Liverpool, they were significantly better. And they were only able to get like one hour gigs around Liverpool. Not a lot of stage time as a musician. When they went up to Hamburger, I'm just going to call it fucking Hamburger. That rolls off the tongue. When they went up to Hamburger, they would get up almost eight hours a day. They'd be on stage. Between 1960 and 62, they did over 105 hour gigs in Hamburg. So there, that's 500 hours in high school as a rock band. Nobody's getting that much hours on stage. It's real easy to talk like that. It feels right. I think I might be Southern. Especially when I'm talking about the Beatles and their Paul McCartney accent. So in Liverpool, they were only able to get one hour gigs, but they go play strip clubs and are able to play for like five hours a time. And that's how they become the Beatles. That's the secret formula, everyone. Uh, In the chapter, there were little stories about how they'd go play, shout, you know, "Ah, put your hands up and shout, come on now, don't forget to say you will. Don't forget to say yeah, 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 say you will. Great song. Um, In a lot of, like, uh, Beatles history books, apparently that period in Hamburg is known as the making of the Beatles. Yeah, so when they said they would play Shout, people would give them drugs, and then sometimes they'd get laid. So they kept going back. I guess another reason then why rock stars are like the coolest of the cool, because that's how they're made. And so that's part of their 10,000 hours. (laughs) Makes me wonder, man, what if like Bill Joy had groupies at the computer lab? Imagine how fast my internet connection would be. He'd be so much more motivated. And now nobody even cares about the the Beatles. I could go well without the Yellow Submarine song. But if I couldn't get on the internet right now, I'd be pissed. I'd be absolutely livid. So thanks, Bill Joy. Finishing up the 10,000-hour chapter, we get to talk about Bill Gates, maybe the biggest financial outlier of our day instead of, like, Warren Buffett. Bill Gates was in a middle school computer sharing program in downtown Seattle, so that's how he started getting his jump start common denominator in outliers he was able to convince his high school to let him do an independent study project where he'd go to this downtown seattle place and then he got his buddies involved in this little racket and then the computer lab contacted the school and was like we love how you're letting them do this abroad program but within the first seven months they have racked up over 55 hours a week (laughs) so these little kids are like giving themselves full-time jobs just messing around on computers And that's how Bill Gates is made. Years down the road now, Bill Gates has a little bit of money. And so he donates ungodly sums to the computer place in downtown Seattle. Because he says they let him steal so much of their time. Bill Gates, biggest financial outlier of our day. It's a misconception that, oh, if Bill Gates was never born, America wouldn't be successful. This would be such a dreary world. We wouldn't have Windows or Dell or whatever. It's not true. The point of this book is that Bill Gates was a lucky son of a bitch. He was in the right place at the right time. And there were a million other guys who would have taken his spot if he wasn't there. We got a quote for this. Malcolm says, 
Opportunity number one was that Bill Gates got sent to Lakeside, the high school. How many high schools in the world had access to a time-sharing terminal in 1968? Opportunity number two was that the mothers of Lakeside had enough money to pay the school's computer fees. Number three was that when the money ran out, one of the parents happened to work at C-Cubed, which happened to need someone to check the code on the weekends, which also happened not to care if weekends turned into weeknights. <laughs> Obviously, Bill and his buddies took advantage of that. Number four was that Gates just happened to find out about ISI, and ISI happened to need someone to work on its payroll software. Again, just more opportunities that he's getting jumpstarted on. We'll skip ahead. Number eight was that the best programmers, Pembroke, knew that the particular program happened to be two high school kids. That's the main gist. Bill was always in the right place at the right time. A lot of computers were breaking in downtown Seattle, and he was lucky. Not just lucky, he jumped on the opportunities to go fix them and give himself the hours toying around with this stuff and learning to be the best. So a tiny bit more about Bill Gates. He is obviously within the 75 richest people ever. But this book has the list of 75 richest people ever. And I'm talking about ever. This list includes pharaohs, royalty, but obviously, I mean, we will never know who the richest people who ever lived were black nobility they call it you know the rothschilds all that type of stuff and it's not just the rothschilds that might be a fall name we're talking about roman banking families who still exists and have lineage of trillions of dollars that are quote misplaced with the world banking organization i'm doing pretty good no conspiracies yet <laughs> but on this list of the 75 richest people to ever live 14 of them are americans born within one decade what are the odds of that? In the history of human wealth, how are just 10 white schmucks <laughs> born within a couple months of each other on the list? And it just shows us more about outliers. To be an outlier on this list of unimaginable wealth, you got to be at the right place in time. And it was the Silicon Valley bust for these guys. The three years were October 1953 to 1956 in March. There's the exact dates, if you guys are wondering. And the bottom line of that chapter, you got to have your 10,000 hours in so when the opportunity comes, you're ready. Because in 1975, in January, the personal computer was ready to be built. And whoever realized that capitalized on it. So people like Bill Gates, who were always the first hammering away at their craft, he's going to be the first one to be on the take when it's time for the computer gold rush. Chapter 2, 10,000 hours. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. You never have to read it. Now you know what it's all about. It takes 10 years to make an overnight success. These next chapters, chapter 3 and 4, I've condensed into one. Oh, don't you love me? Chapters 3 and 4 were called The Trouble with Geniuses, part 1 and 2. I mean, I don't know why it was two separate chapters to begin with, so we're going to be cooking. You would think geniuses are all in the 1%. Naturally, right? They're outliers. They have higher IQs than everyone. That is the definition of an outlier. But we learned more through this chapter that the environmental advantage is big enough to overcome the success of a genius. So a couple decades ago, Bob Saget was hosting a game show called One vs. 100, and a guy with a reported 190 IQ was on the show. To give you a point of reference, Einstein's IQ was 150, and the average is 100. And if you're under 70, you're considered like mentally disabled. This guy on the TV show had an IQ of 190. That's literally off the charts. They estimated it at 190 because when you're that high, they can't accurately test you. And you're thinking, shouldn't I know his name? If he, this guy is 25% smarter than Albert Einstein, 
But no, that's the point of this chapter. Einstein just had the ability to work on a bomb project and was able to then write about light and stuff because he had access to other high-level mathematicians to bounce ideas off of. This guy, Chris Lanigan, was on a game show and bouncing in <laughs> L.I., so he's not in the environment to thrive. We will find out how Mr. Lanigan does on Bob Saget's show at the end of the chapter, but let's talk a little bit more about this genius. He has a 190 IQ. At three, he taught himself to read, taught himself to read at three years old. What? <laughs> he would listen to the radio and read the newspaper, which was how he did it. And then at five, he was disappointed with the answers he received when he was asking questions about God to his dad and pastor. And then in his early teens, he would teach himself different languages within a couple days. He would match Jimi Hendrix lick for lick on the guitar. When he was 16, he got a perfect SAT score and then went to college. And the rest is history, you know? But the rest isn't history. He doesn't just become some Einstein going off to college at 16 with a 190 IQ. It actually probably hurt him being this smart because he missed out on half the human experience, which is like the street smarts, getting to know how to talk to people and all that. He wound up dropping out of college because he was hiding away in the library, he said, because his peers were interested in girls and ganja. And he couldn't relate to that, so he was just hiding in the stacks. And he didn't like authority, which is another problem with these massive IQ people. So we'll find out a little bit more about Mr. Langan in a minute. There was a little test in this chapter Malcolm referred to about how a study was able to find 1,500 kids in elementary through high school with IQs 140 to 200, considered genius level. That's not that many kids, people. Like Malcolm Gladwell talks about earlier in the book, if you're talking about, you think you know someone with, like, he's such a natural at music, eh, he probably is just, like, 18% off the standard norm. And people don't put a lot of work into things unless they already have that 18% advantage. There's only 1,500 kids in the U.S. with a genius-level IQ. So it goes to show that outliers, murky term by now, but quote-unquote talented individuals are extremely far and few between and now next up is when i started to hate this book because malcolm started doing iq tests and like i said below 70 is mentally disabled now i couldn't do the example before the tests so i don't know what that says but i think it's kind of annoying when even in a non-fiction book they put like a friggin maze a coloring book in the middle of the book if you want to go try these yourself, it's called Raven's Progressive Matrices. It's a little, like, memory test and apparently a good IQ indicator. So the average college student scores five points higher than the next, and then the average master's program graduate has 15 points higher. But, like I said before, the average human IQ is 100, and up to 120, there isn't a real difference in the real world. So college graduate, you might be at 105. Master's program, you might be at 115. It still doesn't have a real-world application, only like you're going to be better at puzzle solving maybe. Maybe you'll handle your finances a tiny bit better, but it's when you get to above 120 IQ that you start seeing real-world advantages. Under 120 is only puzzle solving, which is why these people make it through college and graduate programs, because it's a nice little puzzle where they give you the box. You are going to go through this many courses with this many credits, you know, you're just solving that puzzle. Whereas real life, 
maybe it's a puzzle where they don't even give you the box and there's extra pieces thrown in and there's no edges. That's why it doesn't really matter if you have a little bit boost in IQ in real life because this shit is a shit show rat race where nobody knows where they're going or the best possible route to take. And if you act like you do, you're an asshole because because you're leading people in the wrong direction. And I'm not saying your direction is the wrong direction, but it's probably the wrong direction for someone else. And that's the aspect behind the people who have a 115 IQ and act like they're a fucking podcast host, like it sounds like I am at times. Bruh, I'm not here because I'm trying to be an outlier that thinks I have an extra IQ. I can't even do an example matrix or whatever. I'm just here trying to get some laughs. Interesting stuff here. We're starting to transition into the later half of the chapter, a.k.a. chapter 4, because, like I said, I combined these chapters. Malcolm throws a reference back to chapter 1 and how there's a threshold to making it into either the hockey league or the NBA. You got to be above six feet, honestly, if you're going to be in the NBA. But MJ was only 6'6", and MJ's the best player of all time. Let's just use that as an example for now. And Shaq was 6'10", so you're going... Oh, if you're above six feet, then you're good at basketball. So if you're six six, you're better, and then if you're six eight, then you're the best at basketball, which is like another logical human fallacy we use in the stock market as well. It's not just endless increasing is good. There's a point of diminishing return, and that's the same with intelligence as we see with Chris Lanigan, the genius. There's a point of diminishing return. So for this half of the chapter, he uses Nobel Prize winners and their IQs as his data sample but i don't really like this it it like means nothing to me in the sense that what is a nobel prize malcolm gladwell holds it as a sign of success but it's a sign of political success like obama has a nobel peace prize he started seven global conflicts basically wars that we're in right now killed more people with drone collateral damage deported more illegals than Trump, deported more illegal aliens than every single president before him combined, and he wins a Nobel Peace Prize. So why is Malcolm using Nobel Peace Prizes for his data set here? So that's why I'll be, I'm going to be doing my own thing for the rest of this chapter because he lost a little credibility with me there. I'm going to keep running with the NBA example. Once you're tall enough, it doesn't matter anymore. You got to hone your skills in. And so once you're smart enough, it goes over to creativity that leads to success so you can't measure creativity with iq if you ever have taken an iq test or know what they're good for because like oh i have a 180 iq how does that apply in the real world what does that even mean it means you're better at solving puzzles and life is a puzzle to an extent there's too many variables when you get out of college it's not a puzzle anymore and that's where the point of diminishing return is for most people how do you measure creativity there are supposedly these things called divergence tests which is it'll say question number one a brick and a blanket list as many ways you can use these two items in one minute go and then i could use it as a weapon putting the brick inside as like a flail i can use it as a golf club hit people in the nuts with it see i'm just good for coming up with weapons this is apparently how you're supposed to measure creativity objectively And then Malcolm kind of loops that back to people who win more Nobel Prizes do better on these divergent tests. So you got to have the high enough IQ to get there in academia, and then you have to be creative enough to come up with a Nobel Prize winning idea. Whereas Chris Lanigan, Chris Lasagna, whatever, never would have been able to. 
little more about Chris Lobotomy. His early childhood was a disaster. He was raised by a mom who had kids with four different dads, and every single dad was poor. So his mom was obviously not even a good mom. Half of being a good mom is trying to find a good dad to milk money out of, right? (laughs) That's what it seems like the dating world is entirely about. And this guy's mom had four separate kids with four different dads and couldn't (laughs) couldn't even get enough child support to keep Chris in college. Chris knocked his stepdad out, so the the one stepdad, the stepdad that's actually his and his friggin' brother-husband, it's like sister wives, but with four dads in his brother-husband household, Chris knocks his dad out before going to college in Oregon, and he's younger than everyone, like we said, he gets kicked out, partially because his mom forgot to sign the papers for his scholarship. So even though the student is smart as can be he can't even get his college funded and then lanigan spends most of his life as a bouncer on long island so we're talking about hierarchies before a bouncer on long island is like the olympics of bouncers those are the trashest assholes in the country (laughs) and you're dealing with the drunkest trashest assholes on the country a little props to him there i guess so malcolm gladwell kind of compares chris lanigan to Robert Oppenheimer, the guy who was in the Manhattan Project, the creation of the atomic bomb, and he was a genius. Like, it takes an outlier sometimes, like, an, I was going to say Edison, but that guy was a thief. He was in the right place at the right time to steal patents when patents started, like a Tesla who invented the Tesla coil. You need an outlier like that sometimes for scientific ideas. And Oppenheimer was at the right place at the right time, and he was a genius. And in this later half of the chapter, the problem with geniuses is that they're often mentally ill. (laughs) You've seen the meme around a popular, timeless meme. Heroes get remembered, legends have depression. (laughs) Oppenheimer was so depressed that he tried to poison his tutor and then was almost sent to a mental asylum, but he was able to talk them out of that. So he was a genius, but he also had people skills which is something that Chris Langan didn't, even though he had such a higher IQ. And that's why Oppenheimer was able to talk himself into the right committees and use his brains on the project he wanted to, developing a giant bomb. And what they call that ability to like manipulate other people, he tried to kill someone and he didn't even go to jail. That's called practical intelligence, just the ability to read a situation and then have the outcome be what you want it to be. Just manipulation is what I would call it. And that's usually learned through family interactions. Oppenheimer had a big German family, and Chris Lanigan had a single mother with four broke dads. So obviously he wasn't going to be very good with practical intelligence. Chapter takes a little bit of a turn, talking about how wealthy parents will more often speak out on behalf of their kids. Like, you probably saw this a lot with some teachers, like parents are a nightmare. There's always that one kid who was an asshole but their parent would come in and say my kid's an angel he didn't do anything what are you talking about but everyone knows that kid is a d-bag and that kid usually winds up being more successful than everyone because the mom is teaching the kid how to assert themselves and that you should not listen to positions of authority people that usually go further don't listen to positions of authority like steve jobs outliers like that and when i say go further most people are like oh going far my son has gone very far, but he listens to authority because he makes $200,000 a year. 
that's not going far. When I say going far, I'm talking about being an outlier, making millions of dollars, not fighting for this extra $100,000, which is going to be taxed at 50% anyway. <laughs> so the people that go far, far, people that go far, outlier, far, do not listen to authority. And then, of course, there were a lot of examples Malcolm had about lower income parents reacting passively to authority. And a lot of times that's because they can't get involved, you know, um, less affordable households, both parents are working, which is a majority of America now, where the middle class is deteriorating before our eyes. And so when both parents are working, you're not going to be able to have a parent that's going to be able to come in and tell the teacher to get off your freaking case, that you don't even want to be with this teacher for 40 hours a week, but that's the way our society works right now. Think about this a little bit more critically than just lower income, higher income. I don't care what your income is. Do you really think, trust, or expect that this government worker making thirty to $40,000 a year, teacher, this government worker, that the future development of your child's mind should be totally relied on this person making thirty grand a year that just needs to be there between the hours of 9 and 5? I think you're a fool if you think that rich or poor. So the more you get involved, the more you actually raise your kid instead of letting some factory. You know where school comes from? Schuel. It's a German organization they use to create better factory workers. So yeah, you want to put your kids through Schuel. They're going to come out in the system thinking that making the 200000 is being an outlier. So you can see where the bell curve is in our society, where the bell curve comes from. And one of the last chapters in the book is about how the American education system has a summer vacation, and that sets us so far back, like kids just forget everything, and is why we don't do good on standardized tests compared to other nations. If standardized testing is an actual indicator of <laughs> competence in a nation, then I guess that could be important to you. The point here is that the sense of entitlement is good for a child, a little counterintuitive. You know, nothing's worse than a 12-year-old walking around like they own the place, but those are the kids that grow up the healthiest. They did a study on this. Some lady followed around 12 families with a microphone. They followed this rich black family into, like, the doctor's office, and the girl started interrupting the doctor, like, hey, what are you talking about? I told you my throat hurt, not that you needed to check my boobs for breast cancer. <laughs> so... Uh, they were from a higher income, and they interrupted someone as high status as a doctor, which is a good sign, apparently. One of the final points at the end of the chapter, though, to wrap this up a little bit, is that the attitude of entitlement is a much better default than an attitude of victimhood. Like, if you automatically think, everyone here hates me, I shouldn't be here, they're, they're already at an advantage, I'm going to be left behind being at this place, whereas if you're like, I own this shit... <laughs> This is my fucking subway car. I'm going to be here. This is my line. I'm getting my ice cream. That's a better way to go about the world than second-guessing everything and thinking you're a victim, especially in children. And to end this chapter about the trouble with geniuses, Mr. 190IQ, who was on Bob Saget's show, One Versus 100, now lives on a farm, and he just writes papers at night and says he isn't interested in pitching them to publishers. People will contact him and be like, these are really profound papers. <laughs> you need to get them to academic publishers. And he's like, I don't need to be part of that club of publishing each other's papers. That's how, <sighs> when I did my radio show in college, I sat in on a, like a team meeting for mass media communication professors. All of them got together and talked about what 
they're working on because as a professor you have to be trying to publish a new paper that's what they do they just publish each other's papers comment on it and that's how you get uh, name notoriety in the community and they think they're little rock stars when they go to their lectures it was really weird getting to sit in on one of those things it was gross it's like it's a hierarchy of nerds like i was saying before chris lanigan is like i don't care to try to break into that hierarchy so is chris lanigan the ultimate loser he's the ultimate outlier with the biggest brain and he lives this simple life on a farm with a family writing papers maybe that's the best life ever you know take care of some animals eat some fresh milk and cheese and write about whatever your heart desires and not have to care about what some people stuck in a hierarchy are going to say about your paper when you know with as big of a brain as this guy's is it's going to be good work or is he a failure because he didn't win a Nobel Prize with that big brain. Malcolm Gladwell says failure. I say, is he content? It's contentment that matters the most. Not happiness, because you could sit on a couch all day with a heroin needle in your arm and a grin across your face. Technically, you're happy, but a sense of responsibility is better for a human, leading to contentment rather than hedonic happiness. So, Chris Lanigan, the trouble with geniuses. The decision is up to you, ladies and gentlemen. That's going to bring us to the end of chapter three, four. And we are going to move along to chapter five, everybody, halfway through. The three lessons of Joe Flom. Mentioned this guy a little bit earlier. The chapter is about Mr. Joe Flom. He was one of five partners in a gigantic Jewish law firm in the latter half of the 1900s. His dad was a union organizer. Joe Flom went to Harvard, was said to never take notes. He was just a really smart guy. And he went from working at a all-Christian law firm that had 2,000 people doing over a billion dollars in annual revenue. What other industry could you just take 2,000 people and make a billion dollars a year? Those are insane returns. Law, that's where you could do it. That's your background for Joe Flom. And the first lesson about him of the three lessons this chapter is that he's Jewish. And all the outliers we focus on here are products of their place and time, as we said. And in 1950s, New York was the perfect time to start a Jewish law firm. <laughs> so up until this point, there wasn't as much money in law just due to the types of litigation. Massive corporations didn't really exist, and so they weren't fighting each other, and there wasn't that much money to be made. And in this latter half of the 1900s, it was a really big time for lawyers to capitalize kind of like programmers in the 1960s with the previous 10,000 hours chapter before the 1950s lawyers were responsible for what was just called securities or tax basically they were just like tax lawyers but now past the 1950s post-war industrialization is in full swing you have these conglomerate corporation structures that need what's called litigation or <laughs> lawyers fighting lawyers from other organizations and so this is huge, exactly when Joe Flom is growing up and there's a lot of money to be made. Flom's second trick is demographic luck. So again, he's born in New York City in the 50s and his dad was involved in the start of Brooks Brothers, which was where a lot of other Jewish men got their start in the garment industry. And chapter shifts a little bit, talking about his dad. His dad was part of the mafia and was a union organizer. So when you're, in, you, when you're a union organizer, the way I've heard it described is you oversee where every part of the business changes hands and who's taking cuts. 
so you know who's dirty and who's clean and his dad would have a lot of power in this type of society and since he was involved in brooks brothers joe flom was always best dressed and appearance is everything for those of you know brooks brother is uh where ralph loren comes from and i know whenever i wear that stupid little pony on my shirt you know you're getting treated differently And it's not always good, depending on where I am, if I go to a little Mexican joint and my tall white ass with groomed hair and all that bullshit, they're probably going to spit in my food because they think I want to build the wall or whatever. But (laughs) when I go to the nice side of town and I want to order a ristretto cappuccino or some bullshit and I have a little horse on my shirt, they'll make it with love. Appearance is everything, is my point. And Joe Flom's dad friggin' worked at Brook Brothers, so he always looks like he has a million bucks in his pocket. And on that same line, class aptitude and wealth of your parents matters hard. Malcolm Gladwell talks a lot about this. His mom was an author, probably why he's an author, he believes. Humans are creatures of habit, you know. So when, when I see the little horse on someone's shirt, it reminds me of other people who I've seen that in before and usually good memories then. Or bad memories, depending on who you are. So he's saying the class aptitude and wealth of your parents matter. Humans are creatures of habit. You would be crazy to think what your parents did around you didn't matter. In the vein with his dad, they had Joe Flom around the 30s. So 20 years later is a good time to be a lawyer in the 50s, like I was saying. But in the 30s was when you could sneak into the garment district because it's the Great Depression. People are walking around in rags. And so Flom's immigrant dad was a peddler on the Lower East Side. He would just, like, sell fruit and stuff like that. But then when he had his third kid, people were freaking stupid back then, man. Yeah, let's just have a couple kids. No planning. And he had his third kid and was like, okay, selling fruit is not going to be able to keep this next child alive. So he starts selling clothes. And Joe Flom's dad has his wife and mother sewing kids' aprons while he goes out and then pedals all day and this is how he implements meaningful work so he's like i could stay on the lower east side all day but that's not really getting my ten thousand hours and he starts walking all the way up to the top of harlem and he starts meeting with suppliers so this is what he considers part of his success was not just stomping pavement selling stuff but actually networking So as he's meeting new people, he's buying new sewing machines, hiring more girls, pedaling all the way further north. And then finally, he's able to ask another Jewish immigrant that came over around the same time, gave him a middleman position with Brooks Brothers. So he had been putting all the work in, but he still needed a favor to secure a position. But like the point of the book, nobody's able to get anywhere without a little bit of help. And to finish the chapter... Malcolm talks a little bit about what I was alluding to before, that meaningful work is human contentment. And he gave a good little hypothetical in the book. Would you rather be a toll booth operator making $100,000 a year for the rest of your life or be an architect making $75,000 a year for the rest of your life? And that's a tough one. What is that $25,000 a year worth for you? You're basically a prisoner sitting in that little cell, as most wage workers are that have to go in and and punch a clock and work in whatever confines are. Or you could live a meaningful life and try to design things and meet with other people, but you're making 25 grand less a year. So it's up to you people to decide. Some people would consider me stupid for taking the $75,000 to be an architect when I could be making 100 grand. But if that's your line of thought, you're probably the same person who puts in an extra 30 hours a week of work for an extra $5,000 a year. 
you know, these people like the mid-level managers who think you're lazy or unmotivated or yeah, those are pretty much the two words. You're lazy and unmotivated for wanting to only put 40 hours a week into your meaningless job. Whereas they never actually are able to punch out being a manager. You're always thinking about scheduling. If it's like that SpongeBob episode where you think they're burning down the crusty crab and you have to run back there every five seconds. That's the mentality of a manager. So you're like always on the clock and you're expected to put 20 hours more a week at the actual establishment. Is that really worth $5,000 more a year than my ass? Hey, it's all up for you to decide. Everything is subjective. Anyway, all of Flom's five partners in the law firm he eventually starts were born from one of the five different boroughs, all Jewish. And that's the story of success, people. You got to be Jewish at the same time as your brothers in different boroughs. Oi, that's part one of Outliers, everyone. We're on to part two, which has to do with legacies. And is basically just about how certain either societies or places can constantly output outliers. So how are these places anomalies and always producing things above the average? Chapter six is called Harlan, Kentucky, which <laughs> I did not know was a location. I thought it was either a rock star or a porn star. Harlan, Kentucky was founded in 1819 by eight families moving from the British Isles. Some real colonial shit going down out here in Harlan, Kentucky. You never really think to the history of these deep south bumblefuck towns like Harlan, Kentucky, but some of them are founded just by eight families that just decided to plant their ass down. And then four generations later, these kids designate a town center. And then another two generations, they have a mayor and start paying taxes to the state. And then by the 1900s, you got a town. And here we are today. It's not very far away. The point of this little story about Harlan, Kentucky, is that families take to their bloodlines and will feud with each other and shoot each other like some Hatfield McCoy. Remember Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, part of the American education system? So in comparison to the last chapter, as this one isn't too long, they talk about how you could be born into a family of hardworking lawyers, or you could be born into a town like Harlan, Kentucky, of eight feuding families that'll never stop, and you're expected to act like that. So you, you could be born into a world of shit, is how I would <laughs> just summarize this entire chapter. But instead, Malcolm Gladwell decides to shit on an entire city in Kentucky. <laughs> he does cite a pretty cool court case from Harlan and how uh, through generations, like I said before, humans are lazy. So as someone is raised, they will raise their kid. A, because it's just what they know, and B, because we're lazy and we won't go out of our way to figure out a better way to do these things. It's just like America. You think that we're using the best type of government system right now? No, we're just lazy and we're using some 200-year-old document. We're wasting a lot of our money because of that as well, as we learned last month. Anyway, this court case I was alluding to is all based around this culture of honor that they have in Harlan, Kentucky. Generation after generation breeds this culture of honor into the people where you always want to stand your ground there you go no pun intended in the south stand your ground it's not just a law it's part of the culture and it turns out that it's in places with fertile soil a lot of these cultures of honor exist and that's because families don't leave so they just keep doing the same thing and their patterns get ingrained harder and harder which is often tribalism 
or a culture of honor. So it's not good for people to stay in one place for too long is an underlying point of Malcolm Gladwell's. And some of these other fertile places are like West Virginia, South Italy, the Scottish Highlands, very fertile and why people are so stubborn and argumentative there. The American South, obviously. And then a cool other statistic he stuck in there was how the American South, the murder rate is higher because of these crimes of passion or honor but crimes of stranger are lowest so like muggings are lowest and so they will rule in grand jury cases like this wacky one in harlan a guy winds up killing two people that were on his lawn and the grand jury (laughs) decision read he wouldn't have been much of a man if he didn't shot that feller so the culture of honor bleeds its way into the law system You hear culture is downstream from politics. Exactly why Hillary Clinton wasn't for gay marriage until 2014. Yeah, Hillary supporters, you people in that church of the left wing I was talking about before, will never say that. Even though Hillary's been caught with a lesbian lover before. She doesn't actually have a moral compass. She's just part of the left wing church party and will change her ideas about gay marriage based on where the culture is at and it wasn't until 2014 that a majority of americans believed in gay marriage so that's when she decided to change the politics because it was downstream from culture and that's the same thing with the laws are downstream from how your society is bought up and the way malcolm gladwell was able to prove this in this chapter the data set or the study that he uses was they gathered a bunch of people through 23andme the spit test where they find out your bloodline and they wanted to see if these people from cultures of honor were actually more stubborn than other people and the way they tested this was they had these kids go into a fake study where they would go into a room and just do a fake like little puzzle and be like yep that's the test and then they would leave the room walk down a narrow hallway and there would be a really buff guy at the end of the hallway like is there a problem here you want me to move motherfucker and based on the kid's reaction if the kid was from a culture of honor he was more likely to stand up for himself so there was a notable difference based on where people were from and how they reacted to confrontation And although they found people through a DNA test like 23andMe, I wouldn't go as far as saying it's in your DNA how you react to people. I think, again, it's the laziness thing. It's how your great-grandparents were raised, your your great-grandparents were raised, your grandparents, your parents, and then you. It's probably all the same, and that's quote-unquote culture. And so that's why the kids from the South, when they came up to the 260-pound linebacker in the hallway for the study, they'd be like, you want some of this United States Deep South grade-A beef hoss? And then the people who were from Canada, not such a fertile land, were like, oh, sorry, mate, you need me to move over a little bit, eh? And that's pretty much the chapter of Harlan, Kentucky. You get the point? It matters where you're from, who you're raised, and nobody gets anywhere without help. That's outliers, people. Moving on to chapter 7, this is the ethnic theory of plane crashes. I've heard this being referenced a little bit more here and there. Maybe because more planes are going down or something, but... There is some truth behind this chapter, obviously. That's why this is nonfiction. The story Malcolm keeps referencing throughout this chapter is about a plane leaving Seoul, South Korea, to land in Guam. And it was during a period of dense fog, and the captain didn't want to do a flyby. 
which is when you go down to the runway just to see like am i going to be able to land this it's too foggy what's the deal here and then you pull back up and then do a circle and try to land again and the captain didn't want to request a a flyby because it's more of submissive culture it's not a hard southern culture like we just learned about so the guy kind of just like pulled up off instead of requesting another flyby crashed into a 600 foot mountain and killed 90 percent of the passengers And so after this, Korean Air was statistically much more dangerous than United Airlines. United Airlines at the time lost one in every four million flights, which it doesn't sound like a lot, but every time you fly, you're playing the odds. So it's dumb to be nervous on a plane because you have a one in four million chance of dying. But that is still a chance of dying. You just got to be realistic about the game of odds. That's like going into a casino and being the happiest person alive because you have a 1 in 4 million chance of winning. It's just as dumb to go into a plane thinking you're going to die because you only have a 1 in 4 million chance of dying, and now it's even less. So yeah, I could talk to you like a computer about why you shouldn't be nervous on planes, but take your Xanax or whatever. And the point of the beginning of the chapter, Malcolm was just saying that Korean Air wasn't able to fix the issues until they recognized that their culture was contributing to the plane crashes. Plane crashes are a culmination of small problems. So outliers are an accumulation of small wins. Plane crashes are a culmination of small problems. 50% of the time, the pilots have never even met. 50% of crashes are because the pilots were up for 12 hours beforehand. Most crashes happen behind schedule. Most crashes happen when weather isn't severe, but it is just poor enough where it unnerves the pilot. So it's a bunch of these little things that add up. That's why it's better to have two co-pilots, you know, rather than a backup pilot, which is how they did it in Korea. Technically, they were considered co-pilots, but they live in a society where you never question your superiors. Like we were saying before, it's better for you to question authority. If you're just listening and taking orders, there's more of a chance where things will go wrong because you're only using one brain instead of two. All these things are going wrong in this Korean airplane crash but you're only using one brain. So partly why Korea had to mention that their culture has to do with why they get in plane crashes is actually because of the effectiveness of communication in the English and the Japanese, in the (laughs) Korean language. That's a slow way to say Korean language. The first time the Korean pilot said that he was running out of fuel, they didn't even respond because he didn't use a word like emergency. And technically... Every plane on their destination is running out of fuel. Because I don't know if you know this, but they only fuel planes up to the amount it needs. A little bit more, obviously, in case you need to do a flyby. But they only fuel planes a little bit more than as far as you're going. And so when this Korean plane was going down, he was like, hey, I'm running out of fuel. So air traffic control was like, yeah, everybody's running out of fuel. You're coming into land. And the co-pilot was like, I think you should say emergency, sir. And he's like, no! Not emergency, we run out of fuel. Um, But yeah, by definition, then all planes are running out of fuel. So it didn't help to just say what was actually happening. Wouldn't you think it'd be a good law for us to pass as saying that all jetliners have to have a full tank when flying from point A to point B? It would probably prevent a bunch of plane crashes. You know, you could just keep doing laps until the storm's over or go to another airport. But 
we don't actually vote on laws it's massive corporations if i was running for governor or mayor i think i would get 100 percent unanimous support because everyone's already scared to fly and that's how you control a population through fear so i could just say hey you motherfuckers are scared of flying and i know it vote for me i will make every airliner fly with an entire tank of fuel when you are in it look at that i'm already winning elections in my mind Anyway, another thing that Korea does is they always place the pilot with more hours as the primary pilot. Like I said, it's not co-pilots, it's primary, secondary pilot. So they've changed since then, but the fact that the pilot with more hours had control, it even made the secondary pilot more afraid to speak up. And now in America, it doesn't matter who has more hours of the two, they're working together and they can both feel free to comment on each other's flying. Oh, we usually do this. Oh, I'm kind of new, but we do it this way. There you go. That's called communication and is how you don't kill 90% of your passengers. So finally, this chapter about the ethnic theory of plane crashes, you get the point of it. It's kind of just the opposite of last chapter, how there are more stubborn cultures, there are more passive cultures. And so this goes into how there is something called a national individualism collective scale. And the point of this little scale is how much does your country believe you should look after yourself? And the USA is very high on this list. And then in these countries, there is a direct correlation to the amount of reports filed at work on how their pilots deal with the potential crashes. So finishing this chapter, there's almost an identical story about a Colombian pilot called Klotz that crashed a plane because he was too quiet to speak up to authority who was in the air traffic control at that time. And the last words they had on the black box, which is the indestructible voice recorder on all planes when they go down so they can hear what the communications were between the plane. You know, the black boxes that burned up on all the planes on 9-11. Um, so the indestructible black box on the plane that Klotz crashed, the last thing he goes, <laughs> this guy sounds angry, talking about the air traffic control. So he was too scared to speak up and say, dude, we're going to go down, land my plane. I need to get on the runway. And that brings us to the end of the ethnic theory of plane crashes. So as left-wing as Malcolm Gladwell is, I respect how he doesn't stick to just some ideology and objectively looks at ethnic theories behind why massive tragedies happen and will actually comment that sometimes it is the race and culture that matters. And he goes even a step further now on chapter 8 is about rice patties and math tests. So this whole chapter is an ethnic slur, but it's a good slur, so nobody says anything about it. It's about how Asians are really good at math. Rice patties and math tests. So in the order of who really started the rice game, it was China, Japan, Korea, Singapore, Taiwan. And rice indicated status. Rice is life, baby. How many kinds are you making? What's the yield in your farm? What's the size of your farm? What kind? Are you making jasmine rice, brown rice? Those are the only two types of rice I know. If you've never seen a rice patty, it's like the size of a small hotel room. And an entire rice farm only consists of two or three of these patties. So it's not as big as like the medieval farm that people were living at the same time halfway around the world. Due to the fact that these farms are smaller in size and take much more time to grow the rice, it makes the implementation of feudalism much harder, which we'll get into. A little bit more about the technicalities of rice, which we'll be revisiting, but rice is grown like six inches apart. Very calculated, not just this 
Johnny Appleseed tossing seeds over your shoulder or sprinkling corn kernels that are stuck in your teeth in the ground. And as long as it rains by March, then you'll yield a crazy amount of crops. In the rice system, if you like lower your rice levy by half an inch too far one day, you'll drown your entire crop and then have wasted two or three months of work. So tying the rice patties into math tests, people only really learned math in the early years so they can learn about their crops and help on the farm. If I plant X amount here, how much will I yield in X amount of time? Whatever. And humans can stop digits and memories in memory loops that run for about two to three seconds, which is why it's easy to memorize a phone number. You say it in your mind in around two to three seconds. It's harder to memorize numbers in English because there's more syllables. You just have less of a time to fit numbers into that little memory loop that humans are capable of. There was a video I saw of a chimp doing a puzzle, and he goes on for 20 seconds with a memory loop. They show a bunch of numbers, like 1 through 40, on this screen. It goes black, and then he just types on the screen where all the numbers were in order. You could go look the video up of this chimp. It is insane how smart they are. And it turns out chimpanzees actually have a bigger short-term memory than humans. So I was like, is this a guy in a chimp suit? How is this even possible? Am I watching a dubbed video? But they're actually smarter than us in certain little tests. It was really crazy to see because I wasn't able to do what this monkey was doing. Like, apes obviously don't think in English. And so whatever little organization tool they use in their brain, they're able to do little tiny thought loops a lot quicker. And when you're thinking in Chinese, you're able to count and do math a lot quicker. This is the point that he's trying to make here. But this is also why English expands your viewing ability to paint a picture because there's more words in the English language. So you're thinking with like a larger spectrum of colors. So just as the way as English as your first language can enhance your ability to create, if you're raised in a love language like Spanish or Italian, it can enhance your ability or capacity for love, which is pretty cool as well. Asians built an advantage is that by the time that they're four, they can count to 40. And by the time our kids are four, they can count to 15. So our numbers have multiple syllables. And that takes, like I was saying before, a third of a second of processing time away from your brain. So they cut to the point like I often don't do on the show. <laughs> Another cool little example is the way that they say three fifths translates to out of five parts, take three. So it's just easier to learn rather than the american version where like when we're getting up into higher levels in math we're doing proofs which is like use fancy words to describe how you decided that these two angles added up to 180 degrees bitch it's a straight line it always equals 180 degrees there's your proof i don't need to use your stupid terms like in china it's just a term that means what you're trying to say you don't have to remember accumulation of angle postulate side angle side remember all that stupid stuff i just wasted that little tiny brain memory see right there that i used recalling when i could have been using that for the name of a <laughs> a joke or the name of a porn star or something useful you know what i'm saying here so wrapping back to the rice patties a little bit and how it wouldn't make for feudalism to be very practical it's because it's harder to micromanage rice patties a rice paddy requires like 12 to 19 hours of work a day, which is almost a thousand hours a year. By the 10,000 hour rule, these people are experts within a decade on their own farms. So having a government come over your shoulder and trying to tell you how to manage your crop would have made 
for less rich family dynasties, which is basically the same system we have in America today. You work your excessive 40 hours a week, which is more than most people need to, and then you don't really have as much time to mess around and come up with ideas that are destructive to a government because you're watching Netflix or whatever other distractions we have now. And this is why feudalism and monarchies had to be revolted against so many times. It's because people had so much spare time compared to the rice paddies. Naturally, humans just get together and talk about what we don't like. We'll either get together and create stuff or get together and complain. (laughs) So that's just like why the government is trying to regulate the internet right now via net neutrality. And like I mentioned earlier in the show, how Facebook and IG have just hired Tencent to regulate the internet. We saw in the Arab Springs when these people are unemployed and they have access to Twitter, you can literally organize and execute a revolution. Like in Syria, it was successful. They're doing it right now in Paris as well. But if you're on a rice paddy, that ain't happening. Rice paddies are also not good for slave or wage labor because, like I was saying with that little open levy system, I could sabotage your entire plantation's crop with the move of a thumb and say it was a mistake. Whereas if I was a slave on a plantation, and I can't really say I accidentally burned down your entire plantation's worth of crop, it's much easier just to flood a rice farm. And so if I was just like, hey, everybody in the region, this night we're going to flood Master's crops, he's literally going to go under next year. And we might get killed, but that'll (laughs) hinder the productive valuability of this entire region. Throughout Chinese history, throughout all of human history, there's always a ruling class, and that was the dynasties in China. So they controlled the land, but they treated it so if you had a big rice yield, they would give you more rice patties to work with than the next year. You might get an extra one of those hotel-sized room patties to be part of your farm. So it was an incentivized system rather than like the system of government where at the DMV, the workers are incentivized to have lower processing times because the lower the processing times it looks like the more understaffed they are and the more funding they get so it's a reverse incentive you get more for doing less whereas even in pre-modern china they had a capitalist motivational system and at the end of this chapter tying math back into the rice patties now being good at math is also an attitude and a willingness to not understand something for 20 minutes while you work on it And just like our idea with outliers in America, oh, that person is talented. They just rose to the top. No, they failed a lot. And just like trying to understand a math problem, you're going to fail for the first 20 minutes. In a study they found, this is a correlational study, but sometimes correlation is all you need. (laughs) Mexican families listen to loud music at picnics in the middle of the park. I'm not saying if you're Mexican, you're going to listen to loud music in a park, but there's a correlation to the race of people listening to loud music in parks, period. And in this study, the correlation was people who overachieve in math are the same people who will sit through a 150 questionnaire because it's that mentality of this is what I'm doing now. I'm just going to sit down and do this 150 questionnaire until it's over. I'm going to sit down and figure this out. I got my first F and it was in uh, pre-calc. It was like my senior year, fourth marking period of high school. So it was like the last of the last of high school. And I remember sitting there staring at the unit circle. And I was like, dude, what the fuck is this thing? Why do the degrees go backwards? Why is it getting less the more I go clockwise? 
and you have to memorize every 30 degrees, you have to memorize a new set of numbers, I was pissed. I was just not having it. And the way to succeed in math is sitting down with the mentality that you are going to fail for a little bit, but you have all the pieces of the puzzle in front of you. And if you look at it like that, you're just messing around with some puzzle pieces until they work out. That's how you become a successful mathematician. It's patience. So see, I, I did learn a little bit of a moral lesson there from my F. Would I go back in time to study harder and not get the F? Absolutely not. They didn't rescind my college acceptance or anything like that, you know? I learned a little bit of a lesson, but fuck them. I wasn't going to learn that unit circle, and I still am not going to use the unit circle for the rest of my life. So yeah, I was able to go play some more golf with my buddies instead of doing pre-calc homework. <laughs> Another thing with the Chinese and why they're so successful is because we noticed that their old proverbs are about self-responsibility. Like we were talking about at the beginning of the book, it's not about intersectionalities that make you an outlier, it's about self-responsibility. And the quote we have here compared to the West, the quotes were about God and how I will be a man of God, God, country, honor, God first, you know, I will serve God in this lifetime, whatever, in God we trust. Chinese, the Proverbs were like the one they use in the book and the most famous goes, no one who can rise before noon 360 days out of the year will fail to make their family rich. So it's about accountability and, you know, taking control of your own life and all that type of stuff. And that brings us to our second to last chapter, chapter nine, Marita's Bargain. This is the chapter that was about summer vacation. And is it more destructive or good for the American education system? So let's get it started. Overstimulating the mind is a problem. We're saying get your 10,000 hours and if you want to be an expert, but isn't that going to be kind of overwhelming doing the same thing for 10,000 hours? The answer is absolutely. Overstimulating the mind is a real thing, and it starts to deteriorate your actual physical health as well. This is, <laughs> you wonder why everyone gets sick during finals or during a really stressful period. Overthinking things is terrible for your health. That's why meditation is so helpful. It's that one break throughout the day when you're not putting input into your brain. It's like a total reset. I need that right now. <laughs> when talking for two hours straight into a microphone is literally the exact time when you need to do a little bit of turning off. But this is why we train. This is why I'm making the show better. And this is why we're on chapter nine out of Nick's Nonfiction Outliers. So when you overstimulate your brain, there's no way you can remember all those things usually because in order to put short-term memory into long-term memory, you need to sleep. Probably two months from now, I read Why We Sleep. We're going to be going over... We'll do a review of that book and think about your brain as a computer and like the chimpanzees we mentioned before. We don't have that good of short-term memory. You need to sleep in order to transfer things over to long-term memory, REM sleep in particular. But when you do too much of your 10,000 hours or something overly stimulating, you're not going to be able to sleep because a lot of times then your mind is racing too much and you start to what they call overthink things. So there's a balance. You can't overwork yourself, but you can't fuck off too much. Malcolm Gladwell is in line with my thought process here saying how not having a summer break would actually help America contend as one of the top book smart nations in the world. 
but is this a bargain we're willing to pay for overstimulating our kids' minds? Some people argue that 40 hours a week for kids is already too much on a developing mind, but it is agreed on that our current system of cramming for six months and then doing absolutely nothing for the rest of the year is counterproductive for kids' learning. It even exacerbates the class difference, which is a terrible thing for America because the class difference is often conflated with a race issue. And so you'll see what I mean in a second here. During the summer break, the white kids come back having learned more and black kids wind up even more in a remedial situation. That's the simplest way to put it and the easiest way to get people mad at me for saying it. But the way Malcolm puts it and the actual way behind it is that the rich kids who one of their parents aren't working, their mom like takes them around and does a bunch of shit with them, shows them the actual world during summer vacation, and they're able to apply whatever critical thinking skills they learn during the year out in the world. Uh, whereas the low-income kids either watch cartoons all day or sell drugs and then come back to school having forgot everything they learned because they weren't applying anything during the giant hiatus. Think about when you take like four days off of work, you're like, what is this place when you come back? You don't even remember what you do there. That's exactly what's happening with these kids during summer vacation. You remember, you know, summer reading? That was an absolute joke. So the models around the world, USA, you know, the 180 days of school, you know how Phineas and Ferb starts? There's 104 days of summer vacation. 104, that's almost equal how much time we let kids take off to put on. I have nothing against that. I just think it's kind of funny because in Korea, they spend 220 days of school. And in Japan, they spend 250 days in school. Yuck. Little robots over there. There's definite pluses and minus to both of our systems is my point, though. But the worst part about our system is that if you don't get it, then you're not going to approach in America. Like, if you're not a grow child by elementary school then you're not going to be put in algebra in sixth grade, and then you're not going to get into pre-calc in high school. You're only ever going to take geometry or whatever it was instead. Like the idea of no child left behind is a good idea. That's the way to get around leaving outliers behind. But let's just not implement it like that old George Bush bill. And then a quote to end this chapter about summer vacation. We are so caught in the myths of the best and the brightest and the self-made that we think outliers spring naturally from the earth. We look at the young Bill Gates and marvel that our world allowed that 13-year-old to become a fabulously successful entrepreneur. But that's the wrong lesson. Our world only allowed one 13-year-old unlimited access to a time-sharing terminal in 1968. If a million teenagers had been given the same opportunity, how many more Microsofts would we have today? To build a better world, we need to replace the patchwork of lucky breaks and arbitrary advantages that today determine success. The fortunate birth dates, the happy accidents of history, with a society that provides opportunity for all. If Canada had a second hockey league for those children born in the last half of the year, it would today have twice as many adult hockey stars. That's a great point, you know? You're like, well, what are we going to do? Make it so Canadian kids can try out any time of the year? Exactly, or just have another league, like he said, and then you double the amount of kids there. A league and the B league, and then when the kids are done with puberty, you just meld the leagues together because it doesn't matter because you're all fully grown. Finishing this quote, Now multiply that sudden flowering of talent by every field and every profession. The world could be so much richer than the world we have settled for. Marita doesn't need a brand new school with acres of playing fields and gleaming facilities. She doesn't need a laptop, a smaller class, a teacher with a PhD, or a bigger apartment. 
She doesn't need a higher IQ or a mind as quick as Chris Langan's. All those things would be nice, of course, but they miss the point. Marita just needs a chance. It's the point of outliers, baby. You just need a chance. That was my favorite book of the quotes, more of an excerpt, because I just read like two paragraphs, but they were pretty beautiful, and it shows you why this book is a bestseller. It is nicely written, and it's pretty motivational to end there. I'm going to take the liberty as a podcast host, and we're not going to go over the epilogue, which is like kind of the last chapter, but it was just about how it's called a Jamaican story or whatever, and it's just about how his mom was Jamaican, and it's pretty much the, the same story as joe flom the jewish guy from new york but his mom was an english lady in jamaica being white-skinned was a big advantage just like being in jewish in new york was a big advantage so his mom was able to become an author and then he's able to become an author there you go that's the whole chapter (laughs) but if i did the whole podcast like that it'd be 10 minutes long (laughs) that is going to end outliers for us everybody a story of success take out of it what you will but that last quote, I think, is what you need to, to is everything you need to hear from Malcolm Gladwell. Your world could be a lot better as long as you give yourself a chance. Go take the chance that you see waiting there. Because otherwise, like in Bill Gates' case, someone else will and would have. So fucking take it yourself, bitch. Doesn't this make you want to go lift some fucking dumbbells above your head? Woo! That's motivational juice, everybody. Give Outliers a read if you want to. It was a number one national bestseller written by a guy who knows how to write a book. Otherwise, just give this podcast another listen. Go check out the YouTube because it's absolute ridiculousness. And stay tuned because we have our Would You Rather coming up, which make you question what it's going to be like being a parent in this 21st century. Stay tuned. Either watch the show or you're showing proof Prove it to them or you prove it to yourself But honestly, it's better if you do it for yourself Never complacent until we hit the oasis One life don't waste it, feel my heart racing Success, I taste it, I, we on the verge Again, Alrighty, bitches, it is Would You Rather time This month's is more of a hypothetical than a Would You Rather It's a real brain tickler More than a brain tickler, this one's a brain fingering It's gonna make you think about how you're gonna be a parent what you're going to do to protect your loved ones. Do you or a loved one have mesothelioma? You might be eligible for financial compensation. Here's our Would You Rather from the great book of Would You Rathers. If your six-year-old daughter's favorite toy, a talking doll, started trying to convince her that she needed a new friend, the next doll in the company's line, what would you do? So you have a six-year-old daughter, you buy her this toy for Christmas she's been asking for, and then this toy has a bunch of catchphrases, and some of the catchphrases you notice are saying, I need Playtime Sally, she's my best friend. And that's the next toy in the company's line. Creepy, but this is already part of our society. So part of this would you rather, I think age is a really big factor, which they did clarify, they said six-year-old daughter. But by 12, you kind of know you're being sold stuff mostly everywhere you go but the problem is that six years old is your child aware yet that the toy isn't actually their friend like i feel like at six years old i was still playing with what i have like a blankie or like a pooh bear i had 
I feel like I probably still thought that those inanimate objects were my friends. So if my Pooh Bear was able to be like, yo, Eeyore and Tigger up in this bitch would be a great time. You need to go to the store and pick those guys up immediately. I would have been yanking on my mom's pant leg all day if I knew that was the case. But maybe I was just a dumb six-year-old, you know? I think if I was in this situation and the doll started talking to her, I would be like, sweetie, you know this little bitch isn't your real friend. And then if she says, like, no, you're wrong, I'll be like, all right, doll, what's your favorite thing about my daughter? And the doll is just going to sit there and be like, I like cookies. So they'd be like, oh, yeah, this isn't a real object. Hopefully you don't have a, <laughs> a child with an IQ under 70 like we learned today. Otherwise, yeah, I'm definitely not letting my kid play with this toy. But if my kid knows that it's more valuable to go make a friend at kindergarten rather than come home and hug playtime sally then yeah you could play with the talking doll and six years old like we're saying with age you're already in first grade at six years old so my kid better have your kid really should have some friends by then and shouldn't be relying on the this could be a learning moment for the kid where you could be like all right when playtime sally says this you should know this is her sales pitch your friend has one of those sales pitches where they invite you to their house and try to sell you tupperware but this is your little doll too, so I'm gonna let them know that. And if you're saying to yourself right now, what, the doll is gonna tell my kid that they have to buy a new doll? Think about how much of this is already happening. Like, the amount of commercials that we watched as a kid. That's literally called programming. Television is called programming for an issue. I still have half of those commercials stuck in my head. Kahooky crisp. Better batter baseball. Better batter baseball. Sock boppers. Sock boppers. More fun than a pillow fight. Bada ba ba ba. I'm loving it. Dude, my brain is mostly just programmed with that garbage <laughs> so does that mean my six-year-old daughter will be repeating playtime sally's phrases when she grows up i think we're already ingesting more garbage than we even know i touched on meditation during the day there's more stuff that our brain our subconscious is absorbing during the day than we even realize sometimes you try to turn your head to look away from a hobo your brain is probably making that more of a subconscious memory and burying it more than you would ever want to so just one more toy doll telling my daughter that she needs to buy some more stuff i don't consider the end of the world talking about commercials it is a thing now parents will only let their kids watch streaming programming because there's no commercials so i'm talking about like netflix hulu which has all that um pet time rescue that's like the new blues clues right now it's pet rescue i think or some some bullshit like that it sells more merchandise than Dora the Explorer ever did. All these kids have these pet rescue backpacks, these little adorable Dalmatians and stuff like that. So any type of child's program has a sales pitch built into it. And I think this just leads to the bigger question of how invasive are we going to let ads into our society. I mean, as adults, we already have ads in our pockets with our cell phones that we willingly scroll through every day. I can tell when I've scrolled too far and Instagram is giving me basically commercials, but I still keep going. But kids don't know when a Lego commercial comes on. It's not part of the Lego movie or Ninjago, whatever Lego TV show they were just watching. They can't tell the difference. So that is a little messed up. The quicker, though, you learn that you're submerged in a society with ads everywhere, the better you are, which is why this talking doll could be a good learning experience for my kid. The way that they explain this in mass media communications, my 
college is that kids today are fish being born not knowing they're being born into water so they don't they, it's hard to tell the difference between an ad now like you think you're clicking on who are the 10 celebrities who are still virgins at the age of 50 of course i want to click on that but it's all it's an ad you know top 50 schools in each states how the hell did they measure that it's just an ad it's a way for me to load 50 different pages on your page and you can give me different sidebar ads that's all it is so the way we're the way we were taught kids are being born into water without their without knowing they're being born into water this is something scary that's going on with the internet right now with like fake news like that story that was being plastered all over the internet and was on cnn just because it had a picture of a kid in a maga hat looking at a native american there was no truth to the story but it was flooded on the internet and that's how they're going to be able to spread disinformation in the future flooding the internet with stuff with a different angles of the story by one degree so you never know what's true and so the internet is kind of going to be like the water in the sense where nothing's true not even the official source so nobody knows what to trust even though i watched a video that was two hours long of the exact events happening on that day my voice is going to be drowned out as conspiracy or whatever other type of label it is that you can put on this show but a little bit more about the toys. We are always being sold toys. I grew up around the Pokemon age. Pokemon is still a huge thing. What is Pokemon's slogan? Gotta catch them all. McDonald's, even those little toys that since the 50s kids in America have been growing up on them. You want to collect all the different McDonald's toys. And that one's even worse because you don't know what toy you're getting. So you're literally gambling and getting fast food and being sold an advertisement. Another thing they harped on in mass media, little girls get sold on beauty. Barbie dolls really young. Uh, little dolls, being a mom, dude. And boys get sold on materialism at a young age. So boys are getting murked with this, you know. Buy this action figure. He-Man, the whole He-Man collection is here. It's been going on since, like, TV started. I stumbled into this totally 80s store. It's on South Broadway in Denver, if anybody's listening local. I was like, I stepped into a freaking time machine. This place was insane. Every single inch of the wall here, tables in the middle as well. It looked like a hoarder's place, but it was awesome. They were blasting on really good speakers, 80s music, and everything was a collectible item. And the woman was making a living off of, you know, just listening to cool music and selling her old collectibles. The only thing I was considering buying in there, there was a stuffed Kermit, you know, which I was considering buying for the meme. And he was dope you know i would have just taken a bunch of pictures of him in the oven and just it just would have bought me endless happiness but it was 42 dollars bruh who's gonna spend 42 dollars on that type of stuff i don't know how these places stay in business yeah since the 80s kids have been drowning in advertisements buy this next toy you love your toy don't you well you have to buy this next one which is why i don't think this would you rather holds that much weight on the growth of my child so let's wrap this up a little bit because I think by this point you know where I stand. Let's extrapolate this to the future a little bit because it's been with us in the past so it'll probably stay with us in the future. There was a Black Mirror episode where a lady was like brain dead or whatever so they upload her neuroconscious pattern into a teddy bear or it was like a monkey I think for her kid. So this lady is dead but her consciousness lives on in an uploaded little toy like the one in this hypothetical. And the scary thing about it where it gets like kind of Twilight Zone is the lady was only able to have four different responses and the girl winds up giving the toy away. No! 
but this is a plausible thing moving forward in the future as creepy as it is like remember those 2005 chat bots we used to talk to them when we were bored in high school it's just like a ai that you talk to and it'll give you candid responses the algorithm is pretty good you can ask him things and it'll lead the conversation in other directions and then there's like interactive ai at disney now i don't know what to believe on these ones it's like you go into a room and there's a screen and one of the disney characters will start to talk to a room of people and you talk back at the thing and it comes up with seemingly relatable crowd work so i don't know if they just ran a couple hundred focus groups and had their responses set up for crush the turtle or mike wazowski the host of one of their sideshow attractions but this technology exists, and so how it's cool to have this technology in a theme park and to go mess around with it, but how close do we want it in our household and interacting with our children? And that is the question, people. My final stance is my kid is going to be spending a lot of time with this little salesman and learning about how to pitch a new toy to, <laughs> a new toy to them. Mindfulness is what will set you free in this would you rather and in life altogether and that's going to conclude our episode nick's nonfiction, our second ever edition covering outliers by malcolm gladwell the story of success i hope you all have found something you can take away from this because next week it's going to be controversial it's going to be a good one you're not going to want to miss bullshit jobs a theory by david gerbner it's going to be a great read, great interpretations, as always, a great Would You Rather, a new monthly review. Kind of liked that section. We'll see how you guys respond to it. Get at me, as always, with your suggestions for new books, criticisms of the show, hopefully comments if this inspires you to do anything of your own, the powerful words of outliers or myself, your schlub of a host trying his best to give you guys the best show for your dollar. This has been Nick Muniz with your show, Nick's Nonfiction, and I'll see you guys in March for Bullshit Jobs. Peace. Don't go to war with yourself. Just turn, just turn, just turn it on. And you can't go wrong.